Hello again, you're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I am Hugh Wisencroft and today, well, the Premier League has shown us an unusual trend. Do you think this is the most open season ever? And if only Mikel Arteta had a creative spark in his side of Arsenal now being given a reality check. A year after their biggest defeat in their history, Southampton are one of the Premier League's toughest opponents. We'll ask why. And after the Bolton boss Ian Everett tells a young goalkeeper to man up, we'll ask what counts as a manager crossing the line. To help me through it all, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Matt Dickinson. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to speak to you. I was looking at the Premier League table a little bit earlier on. Ominously, Alison, Liverpool are second at the moment um, for everyone else in the league. But if you look across the other sort of traditional big six, six, Chelsea are down in ninth. Arsenal a 10th, Spurs 11th, Manchester City 13th and Manchester United in 15th. And that, we feel, would buck a, a normal trend after five or six games. I'm certain at least two or three of those sides would be in the top six already. What do you think the difference is? Is it the most open season we've ever seen and why? Alison, I'll start with you. Uh, hard not to agree that it is the most open start to a season. And I think given that this weekend was relatively dull, um, it'd be interesting to see if, if we slowly start to get the sort of results and, and phases that we, we'd normally expect. But the, I don't think we should think we're that special, to be honest, because it's it's Europe-wide, this weirdness. I mean, um, Lille have been doing well rather than PSG. Leipzig have been doing well. I mean... Sassuolo, I mean, who the hell are they in Italy? And um, it, I mean, Rangers, Rangers scoring wonder goals in Europe, as I wrote in the Sunday Times, um, you know, scoring goals in Europe and topping the, the, the SPL. I mean, they, it's, it's all about the weirdness of the world, isn't it? And how each, each, each of the big clubs, I think, have had less time to recover from having to finish off uh, what was a relatively good season for them. So they've had less time with their their players um, probably tried to micromanage the fact that they had less rest. So they've tried to incorporate that into training. And so they're not quite at it, perhaps. It, no crowds has a different effect, not only on each club and manager, but on each individual player, I suspect. And those teams that have probably brought in Sykes and addressed it rather than trying to pretend it's not happening are probably doing better. It's, there's, there's, there's a myriad reasons why I suspect it will settle down and, and, and in fact it's starting to do so as in I think Liverpool won the way champions win um, when they've got a few problems but their quality comes to the fore it wasn't you know Liverpool's victory was not very exciting but you know they just do enough that we'll probably start to see a few more of those sorts of results where just having the best players and the best manager when things are aren't quite right you, you you get the result you probably would expect but it's it's been it's been astonishing open I, what I would just finally add is it's not open at the bottom though I think most most pundits um, and writers predicted what the bottom five six would look like and that's what it looks like what Man United in there <laughs> Yeah, everyone yeah. did, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, you might be right. No, I think I think Alison's right, really. I mean, there are you could go through every team and pick out the the various kind of flaws and improvements and whatnot, but I think the broader picture is that this is just a a kind of a very surreal beginning to the season. And I think as I've said before, last season there was something about 
when the restart, it was a six-week window. We've got to finish it. This is it. It's beginning, and this is the new kind of reality for we don't know how long. And I think there's still quite a lot of adjustment going on to that. And I don't know. I th- also would agree that we don't want to get too carried away. I mean, we thought, we thought last year that Leicester, around, you know, until Christmas, were possibly going to challenge Liverpool for the title, and then they finished fifth. They always the the kind of so-called big six always find a way to find the, you know to end up in and around those six places so they have the money they have the resources if we get to january and they're still kind of lagging behind they'll still have more money and resources and uh i wouldn't get too carried away just yet personally yeah it's, it's interesting it's almost the opposite of i think what we saw from the early matches of lockdown because i think the the removal of of home advantage uh, i went to a few games then and it it sort of seemed that with the sort of sterile nature of stadia with no fans that it was almost a matter of well you know the team with the best players is, is going to win they were sort of taking out a sort of that the, that sort of uh, I mean I remember going to an Aston Villa Chelsea game and you know in a game where you'd normally think well at Villa Park the, 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 the fans will somehow lift their, their team maybe force some kind of comeback it actually turned out to be yeah the team with the better players just got the ball and, and passed around them and, and I think at that stage we were thinking that Maybe it was going to take out a certain randomness, but it's it seems to have swung back the other way of 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 introducing more um, the, the the weirdness of the circumstances. But yeah, I mean, Greg is probably right. I think maybe that's just because we're in the the start of this season where you know teams are still readjusting after um, yeah the, the the most curious sort of preseason in history, and and it's just taking a bit more time to bed bed back in. I also saw a, a, a table. Of the kind of um, behind closed doors football in a, in a newspaper this weekend, and I think the top three were still Man City, Man United, and Liverpool. So if you include the the back end of last season, that's still the familiar names. Um, obviously, this, they've had less rest, uh, slightly more disruption in the kind of intervening period between the seasons. Um, I think over a longer period, you'll, you'll still see the familiar names emerging. So I take it that, that then from a couple of you at least, it is not the most open season ever, <laughs> just an open beginning open start, to the yeah. season. <laughs> open start to the season. Exactly. Well, as, as uh, we like our stats, don't we? And as, yeah, I mean, see in the, in the paper this morning, most open start officially since 67-68, uh, the last time that no teams were unbeaten after six games. So, but, you know, I mean, we've seen some, we've seen some freak results. There's no two ways about that. But, um yeah, I think uh, six six games is um, is early to be saying this will prove to be the most uh, open ever. I did find it interesting though. You know, you look at the league table, and I think every team has an excuse for underperforming at the moment. Not okay. I know some teams have had longer preparation than others, but they're all playing in a similar environment. So I still find it interesting the likes of Villa, even Everton. Crystal Palace or Southampton are up there at the moment playing decent stuff. And that the, and that the other, the, the big sides seem to be the ones who have been more impacted. That's what I find to be more interesting. And, and fair, fair enough for a couple of teams who had, you know, European football and an extended time off to deal with. But what about the likes of Chelsea, for example, or, or Spurs? You know, they're, they're, not, they're not great. You know, there's a little bit of inconsistency, some good performances, some bad. Why do we think that is? Is it just the difference between those those teams that have, you know, the new signings have 
have hit the ground running. You know, Everton, we've seen it with, well, obviously in, until this weekend, we've seen it with, you know, James Rodriguez, uh, among others, and the way that they, you know, new signings have, have sort of bedded in beautifully. And Chelsea, who are still a team who are exploring what their best 11 is. You know, Frank Lampard's trying to juggle, you know, um, uh, it's an exciting range of, of players, but ultimately, you know, which players to pick in which formations, which positions is something that could take months for him to, to establish. I mean, I, you know, if you go through club by club, I think that's, you know, certainly as you start the season, it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be one of the deciding factors. Maybe, maybe it's partly patience as well, because times are odd and difficult for many reasons that clubs are not putting the pressure on the managers that they were. I don't feel that any of the managers, even though some of them are going through some really very um, demanding situations and getting a lot of stick, I don't feel any of them are likely to be sacked imminently. There's, it's as though the coaching staff are being told, you've got longer in which to fine tune and find, find make sure the team gel. And, you know, it's like, Frank Lampard, for example, has a free pass to work out currently, his current plan of action seems to be, I'm going to work out how to defend. And he's allowed to do that without scoring a goal. Whereas if if times were normal, if times were normal, there would be an outcry that Chelsea weren't trying to score a goal. It's, it's, it, the, 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 I'm laughing because there's a dog barking and it's not mine. No he's, uh, he's our greatest fan. <laughs> Nobody ankles him. <laughs> Stanley the dog, possibly named after Stanley Matthews. I'll just throw that in because it's a football podcast. He wasn't really. But does anyone, does anyone, does anyone agree that be, even though we, we might be critical of, um, formations and tactics and individual managerial decisions and demeanours. No one really expects anyone to be sacked imminently. There does, there does seem to be t- people who would normally be under a bit more pressure seem to be given time. And that means you get this open season, I think, because they're, 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 they're allowed to fail. I think at the moment, a point is being greeted not necessarily as a win, but almost like two points at the moment. You know, teams seem far more content with a draw and not losing a game than they were before, particularly the big clubs. You know, if you if you don't lose at the moment, it seems to be like fans, players, managers afterwards. Everyone's just like, yeah, OK, you know, we didn't lose. So we're, we're, we're pleased with that, which I find odd, you know, and I guess it's a little bit what Gregor said. You know, there might be this underlying belief that things will turn out okay in the end and we're just going to build into the season slowly get our rhythm back and and then after January you know we'll put together five six seven eight wins in a row and and that will be a, a season defining run but I, I look I, I do think it's a very open season and I'm looking at which other clubs will um, build the consistency you know Leeds United fans I'll, I'll give my apologies now you know it's not going to be as difficult as I, I thought it would be at the start of the season you know there are teams in there who are, are going to grab onto this a little bit more tightly than others that's the thing that I find most intriguing because um, I, I, I like NFL I like American sport for example I was watching a series during the summer called Hard Knocks and the LA Chargers coach head coach Anthony Lynn the first Zoom call he had with his players before they came back to training in a totally new environment with testing and social distancing, you know, he said whoever could manage the situation off the field with coronavirus had the best chance 
of winning the title that year. You know, it was about the mindset, the ability to to put up with the difficult time that they were going to face and and a new environment. You know, that that was more of his focus than on the field. He was like, you know, because our preparation for on the field very much will be defined by how we can cope with how procedures work off it. And I wonder whether some clubs are just coping better with the things going on off the field, including having no fans. And that's why it seems more open at the moment. And maybe those bigger clubs are the ones who currently aren't coping as well. Maybe they're more disrupted by what's going on off the pitch. Gregor, what do you think? Yeah, there's, there is no bigger uh, disruption than the than no fans inside the stadium. And I, I agree, that's that. You know, that's a, a good point. I heard Michael Appleton, the, the Lincoln manager, I can't believe we're still talking about Lincoln and Tom's not on the podcast. He was saying the same and in different circumstances. I heard him on the radio on, on the way to a game at the weekend. Um, he was saying exactly the same thing. It's about you know, minimising the risk for the players and the disruption that they're going to have. So, but the biggest disruption is the fans. And I just wonder as well whether, you know, the, going to Anfield, going to uh, the Etihad, going to the Emirates, all these places, it's not the same. It's not got the same kind of daunting sort of feel about it. It's, 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 now, it's now kind of a massive leveller in, in those terms. And people have looked, tried to kind of approach this from so many different angles. Um, whether you know strikers are more relaxed in front of goal, and uh, my personal thing is that I think defenders are just slightly less heightened by uh, having no fans around them. It kind of, I, I've said this a few times. It always made me feel kind of a bit more naked on the pitch. <laughs> it's like there's no there was no one in support of you all around you. It almost helped you get your bearings as well. So there's so many little fine little details, and I think we're still kind of working out how how it is affecting teams, but that is the biggest effect. It's the biggest, it's the biggest change. And as I say, team, the, the bigger teams, the, the more vaunted clubs who, whose home records, you know, were something that they could, they could rely upon. That's been, you know, that's changing. Well, to pick up on what Gregor said then, I just wonder if with no fans come up, come the 75th minute, you, you, you forget you're in a proper game and you start thinking in training games terms because the ambiance is very much hearing what the coaches are saying from the touchline and that echoey silence. I wonder if it's harder to remember to stay completely concentrated for 95 minutes, as it turns out to be most of the time, when you haven't got someone on your back constantly and whether that slightly affects defenders more because of the type of concentration they have. Because I think a lot of athletes will tell you they you know, they, they get through those moments when they're, they're mentally dipping and physically dipping because they have that connection with the supporters and they, they want to react to that. But if you haven't got that oomph behind you and the reminder that this game matters, sometimes I think concentration dips. Gregor, what do you think? I agree, absolutely, yeah. I, you know, it's really hard to, to explain. I've been going over this in my head over the last 24 hours. I just still, it's very hard to explain what, a crowd gives you it's kind of apart from just a as i said sort of heightened senses and and you know more adrenaline and stuff it's something about it, your bearings it's like the, the stands feel closer they feel nearer when there are people and there's kind of movement in them <laughs> and the noise as well is a kind of arousal it's just i and i think that a defend you know if you're looking at there's going to be more mistakes or more kind of in balance, I think a defender makes a mistake, it's going to be punished. If a striker makes a mistake, it's it, it, 
it's more important if a defender does so personally. So I think the, the effect is, is being seen more on, on defences. I need to ask what sort of football fans you are now. Would you rather see the Premier League return to the sort of predictable nature of the big clubs that we've, we've, we've known and loved over the last 20 odd years? Or would you prefer this random nature to continue throughout the season? Anyone can win a game, a few more seven twos, Alison, you never know. What would, what, 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 would you, what would you choose? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm into losing 7-2 every week. It's good, it's good for my metabolism, keeps me slim. Yeah, sure, let's go for it. I, 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 I don't mind it being unpredictable if it's because, because of the tactics and the football and the flair. I'm just a bit suspicious of it being open because of the forces of COVID, to be honest. So I don't like it for that reason. Matt? Yeah, I think from the uh, from my reaction to Project Big Picture, it um, told you all um, all you need to know about my views on uh, Big Six domination and, and the possibility of that basically being uh, in perpetuity. I, I think, yeah, I take Alison's point that if it's COVID-related, obviously it's, um, you know, far from ideal. But let's. this is probably one of the few uncertainties in the world we can embrace at the moment. Unpredictability all day long. I, you know, I still think as unpredictable as it seems at the moment, we're we're going to see. Even if Manchester City are having a an, have an awful season and they look like they're really disjointed at the moment, are we going to say they're not going to finish in the top three or four? No chance. I was going to say. I mean, ultimately, I mean, look at the table. I mean, if they win a game in hand, they're up to fifth. If Man United win a game in hand on the sum, they're up to around that. So um, yeah. Stop uh, ruining it, Matt. I know. Sorry to sorry to be a know, all all of our wonderful theories. I think we should still air our wonderful theories, but we should just um, keep them as theories for now, basically. Well, you never know. Leicester City, obviously, they've won the Premier League title before, but they might be part of this unpredictable nature and continue their stride although it's quite predictable to be perfectly honest Uh, let's reflect on them and a little bit on Arsenal too Jamie Vardy's goal means Leicester are handling the new normal pretty well aren't they they're up to fourth at the moment but I wanted to talk about Arsenal more so it's three defeats in four league games for Mikel Arteta the Arsenal boss is the party over before it's begun then Matt you're at the Emirates um what did you make of the game well, I thought that Arsenal actually, if you'd asked me at half time, I, I was enjoying Arsenal's performance apart from, you know, in the last 10 yards. I I, I quite liked the way Arteta um, had them set up. I, I liked the sort of fluidity of the system where you suddenly had, you know, Xhaka uh, and um, uh, was, you know, going from right mid, uh, left midfield back into left back to allow Tierney to bomb on. The same on the right side to allow Bellerin uh, to get forward, and it was yeah, it, it and it and it it was working to the point of, you know, then you had some uh, arrowing great balls from from David Luiz in particular um, that were getting to the fullbacks, and yeah, I, I, I thought the system was was yeah, there was a clear focus to it, there was a clear plan to it, and it was say working up to the point where it got to. Uh, well, Lacazette on 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 one occasion, most notable occasion. Obama Yang starting on the right was definitely he didn't seem very comfortable there. Obviously, we've seen his sort of trademark runs in from the left, and that was that was one bit of it that that wasn't clicking. But yeah, say if you'd asked me at half time, I would have thought, okay, you know, there's a frustration, but there's also a plan here and a you know a pretty progressive one. It was second half where they they 
they basically started losing their way and they almost just sort of ended up stumbling into this trap from Leicester where which clearly was frustrating them for 70 minutes throw on Vardy and try and um hit that you know hit on the break as they did in classic style so you know I, if I was an Arsenal fan I wouldn't be despairing I would see where Arteta's trying to take this team but like Arteta will be himself I'll be asking some questions about the punch uh, at the sharp end of it and I'm not quite and to, on that I'm not 100% sure what the answer is apart from from getting Lacazette to miss the ball from three yards out. Gregor, what did you think? I know, I know you watch a bit of Arsenal. I, I, you know, there were periods where I thought Yuri Tielemans in particular, Mendy as well from Leicester were just given way too much time and space to turn, to dictate. And I didn't see a response to that from Mikel Arteta. And I know Partey was making his full Premier League debut, but... Um, and there will be some adjustment time there in terms of the midfield getting used to how he plays as well. But I didn't see it addressed by Mikel Arteta. And that was my only concern because that was the only way they were going to lose the game. And in the end, it was. Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, you have to give Leicester credit for that. I mean, it was the same against Manchester City. Tielemann's playing a little bit deeper where he can find a little bit more space and turn and with one ball over the top, open up the defence. You know, that's that's clearly Leicester's plan and it, and it worked to a tee. Although you have to say then, you know, I'll keep coming back to you. You can see Arteta's blueprint and you can see, you know, what he's trying to do with the team, but he's still playing Xhaka in the back three or Louise and bringing on Mustafi. And for the goal, Mustafi turned and kind of ambled back in and Jamie Vardy was... It, you know, the first ball was good, but it could have still been cut out. It could have been uh, rectified that. And, and Mustafi just let uh, Vardy just, just hear through and he have, a, have a very simple finish. So he's still got players that he has to rely upon that really he, he won't want playing for Arsenal in the next six to 12 months. Um, so that's that's the first thing to say, part, part of his personnel. But... It, Arsenal have only scored eight goals in six games as well. So there is something that's kind of a bit of a creativity. I don't know if it blocks the right word, but they're not they're not firing in the same way that they have done in the past. Um, you know, there's there's been talk about why Aubameyang is being played not in his best position when he's their best player. Um, and, you know, partly that may be fitting, um, fitting other players into the team. But... I think I think honestly that Leicester deserve credit. I think Leicester deserve credit for for the way they approach this game, and Arsenal. I don't know something's not quite clicking in attack for them. Although you know, as they said, they could. They were very unfortunate not to not to score a goal. I, I'm not sure how how Schmeichel was affected by Xhaka uh, jumping out the way of, of the ball for the, for that goal, personally. And uh, as Matt alluded to, that cross from Tierney. Tierney looked like he had an excellent first half, and he. You know, whipped in the ball for uh, for Lacazette, and I'm not sure how he didn't score there. So they were unfortunate not to score, but um, I wouldn't say it's worrying for Arsenal. I just think I personally think that there's still they have players in the team that you can't they you can't they're not consistent enough. I've come back to that regularly. Louise is not consistent enough. Jacka, although he's improves greatly, and particularly in under Artea, is not consistent enough. Um, I think the same is true of Sabalos as well. You know. I don't think he's consistent enough. So their, their squad's still not quite up to it. 
I've been having an argument, Alison, with a with a mate who thinks Arsenal should be judged at the level of a Manchester United, with similar expectations. Um, I personally don't see it. I don't think a top six finish after eighth last season. Well, I'll ask you, is a top six finish for Arsenal this year good enough after eighth last season? Well, I think it would because I think Arteta is the ultimate example of what I was saying about managers just not being under pressure and being given more time than they normally would. I think that's tenfold at Arsenal. I think Arteta's just got free reign to say if it takes me a year to get it right, he's going to be given a year and he will do it slowly and methodically. Methodically, and if he moves up the table only by two places, I think he'll end up claiming that's reasonably successful. I, I, I mean, I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek when I say that because they are Arsenal, but I, I just feel the fallout from the end of Wenger was so unpleasant and unpalatable and not the direction the club wanted to go in. They're, they're, they're ready to build slowly again. So, And I think probably because of that vibe... Arsenal will have a sense of solidity and might well end up uh, hitting the heady heights of fifth, which I think would be would be fine. If you go through their personnel, it, you know they're a team that they, 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 they're not all singing, all dancing to me. I don't look at them and think I expect great things. What greatness will come from Arsenal will come from how good a coach Arteta really is because I think everybody behind the scenes at Arsenal think he's the man. <laughs> that said with tongue-in-cheek as well, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I think, you know, I, I would say, you know, he wasn't flawless last night, but I think, you know, every, everything I've seen from Gabriel look, makes him look like, you know, he's he's someone that you're going to build a defence around quite confidently for for some time. And Partey as well is is obviously, you know, he's he looks like the type of midfield, exactly the type of, of midfield player they've needed. So if, you know, if you're looking at those as sort of two signature signings, if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd take some, undoubtedly take some comfort from from them as well. But I think I think Gregor's right that, you know, those are steps in the right direction. But then when you th- you're thrown on Mustafi in those situations, you're, you know, you've got your head in your hands waiting for the for the for the error to come, basically. You look at what what other options do they have? Pepe came on. Pepe really has been so hit and miss. Uh, Willian's injured so wait, like, wait, wait. Uh, when was the hit? I missed that. <laughs> There's the odd hit, you know. <laughs> There's not a free kick once, anyway. Um, you know, Willie Ann's injured, so yeah, he's he would be a, you know, a strong addition for them. And Ketia, again, potential. Who else is there? Reese Nelson, potential. There's not. This their squad is thin, and I think he's you know we've already he's already drawn improvement from this squad, and you've seen his sort of impact on the. On the squad, I feel like I'm a kind of, <laughs> I don't know, I'm champion Arteta every turn here. I don't mean to. I just feel that you can't see what he's doing, and there are going to be, you know, kind of blips in this because the squad is still not anywhere near what Arsenal should be. Another tough couple of games coming for Arsenal, though. Well, I should say Manchester United next. Um, they've got Villa. They've got Leeds, who are doing well at the moment. Wolves after that. I mean. God forbid a bad run for Arsenal, but would that mean anything? Would that change anything? I refer you to my previous answer. No, because because Arteta, Arteta, ridiculously, ridiculously, I think Arteta is currently regarded as 
the most progressive coach in the Premier League. He's the one with most room to improve, the one we expect big things from. And he is, week on week, you look at Arsenal and you see something different. I bet, Matt, when you went to the game, you did not think you would come out of that talking about the way the defence went from a back five to a back three to a back four and the movement of everybody involved. I mean, that takes a lot of coaching and you need to be confident that you're able to mess around like that, aren't you? No, I doubt. I mean, I I was there for the opening game of the season at Fulham and they were doing a a different version of that sort of fluidity with Tierney sort of fanning out from a left-sided centre-back. But, I mean, just to throw a... uh, throw a brick in the pond. How about, um, you know, there's the other guy in the other dugout, Brendan Rodgers, Arsenal. Um, you know, he would have jumped at moving there from from Celtic. Um, you know, he, 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 he would have been on any sensible shortlist for me. Um, you know, I'm not saying that means Arteta is the bad choice, but he would, Brendan Rodgers would have been a very credible choice for that job. So, I, 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 look, Arteta's not going to be under pressure anytime soon. That's just not going to happen. But, you know, I would have thought Brendan Rodgers is exactly the type of manager that um, might be next cap off the rank. I'm sure Alison would agree with me. Let's quickly give Leicester a wee bit more credit too, though. I think, you know, they were without Soyuncu, Pereira still out, and Didi. But three big players for them there. Um, Fofana looks, has come in. He looks like the, the, the latest emerging star for them. They are a club that are run well, and they have been for a number of years now, and that they're kind of seeing the fruits of it uh, with a you know, a very good coach as well. So, um, uh, yeah, I think I think Leicester, Leicester are going to be the team to kind of again to threaten to to break into the big six again this season. I was going to say for Fafana, but I, I, you know, having been there last night, I thought Fafana was the player that I was sort of, you know, if I, if I walked away going any any player as you know thought thought he was decent before, but I thought just sort of was on a a, a different level than um, yeah that I'd previously seen. I thought he he as as Greg said, he looked like he's really going to um, be a force, um, you know, and it, it yeah they had to they they muddled through. I mean, you know, Harvey Barnes up front uh, in the first half was a uh, one of those experiments that you know. Never, never looked like working. But as Gregor says, they they were short of short of uh, a few options. They played in Europe in midweek as well, obviously. And um, yeah, and and yeah, I thought they. But again, at least they came with a plan. Uh, it was a scruffy plan, but it turned out to work very well. Well, well I mean, I would like to give Rogers credit for the fact that after that quite horrible defeat to West Ham, Rogers said we rushed the game. And I think, I mean, he he did the exact opposite against Arsenal. They just were very defensive, very solid, uh, the opposite of rushing and just just bided their time, bided their time so that when Vardy came on, they could rush with effect and take Arsenal a little bit by surprise. So it's, it's good when a manager identifies what went horribly wrong and then does the exact opposite. I don't think you can lurch from tactic to tactic like that through a season and expect to finish in the top three for example but I think it's good it's good it's good it was good to see that him identify that sometimes all the things we love about Leicester is the pace and the counter-attack and that sort of free-flowing joie de vivre that they have it looks like it's effortless but sometimes they go too far and they can be picked off so he he reined it in and it worked although you know it sh- it sh- we shouldn't be going on about a wonderful Leicester because they were very lucky that the Arsenal goal was disallowed. It should not have been disallowed. So that would have made a difference, wouldn't it? 
Gregor, a final point? I was just going to say, it was. It felt like a very uh, cerebral affair, didn't it? There seemed to be cutting to managers in the, in, the, in the dugouts, kind of pouring over the iPads that they all have fixed to the side of the dugouts now and figuring out the tactics. And it certainly, the two of them were, the two managers and their, and their coaching staff were, were having a battle, a bit of a ding-dong, and, and it's Brendan Rodgers who came out on top. Listen, each and every week, this is a very cerebral affair, the game podcast. <laughs> uh, it feels like a managerial special as well. We're still going to talk about uh, what a difference 365 days makes for Southampton. We'll also talk about some choice words from the Bolton boss, Ian Everett. But a reminder, uh, to enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and you will get one month three. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So let's talk about the difference that a year can make. A year ago, Southampton beaten 9-0 at home by Leicester. That was their biggest defeat of all time in any competition. They then lost their next three games, but the club decided to stick by the manager, Ralph Hasenhüttl, and they've won a very respectable 16 of 34 Premier League games since that 9-0 rout. Alison, this is a lesson, isn't it, in standing by your manager? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I, apart from the cynic in me thinks they probably stood by him because they didn't have anybody lined up that was quite right. And that has Southampton have tried to make that their model Um over the last sort of six years or so, that they don't they don't sack without knowing exactly where they're going. I think they invested a lot in in the Hassan Hootel way, and I think also I think the players would would uh, they would have canvassed the players, and the players would have said, "No, we think we can get through this." If he'd been a different sort of character, I think he would have lost his job. But I think sometimes the, a sort of strength of personality can override an outcome because Hassan Hootel is such a um, relentless, meticulous, intense, attention to detail sort of figure. I know all managers are to a degree, but he is particularly so. And you only have to go to a a game in lockdown where he's the manager to realise that. He is unlike any other coach. Um, I would say the two polar opposites are Rogers, who is your iPad manager and quite quiet and leaves the shouting to Schmeichel. And then Hassan Hoodle does not shut up. He, he goes at them, it goes at them. And he's like that in training. He's like that all the time. He wants everything to be exactly as he wants it to be. He's relentless. And you can see that now transmitted into the style of play they have, which is um, they don't have time to, he doesn't want them to think, he wants them to do. So it's one touch, one touch, don't loiter on it, ball. Just do it, do it, do it, do it. And lots of praise when you do it right. 
and lots of yelling expletives when they do it wrong. So the and if the players buy into it, that's the crucial thing, isn't it? I mean, he'd be out he'd be out of town completely if the players were, you know, going on strike in the way that players do sometimes. They just sort of engineer it that a manager has to go because they're not responding to what he wants, but they like it and they're buying into it and. It's not it's not all the time you see it, but there are, it, there's been enough of seeing Southampton click really quite beautifully. One touch, one touch, ping, 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 and um, players having confidence on, to dribble and to have vision. That yeah, well done, well done, Southampton for canvassing, making sure everyone was on board and going for it. It's a nice story actually. Henry Winter was clearly struck by Hassanhutel's. Uh touchline uh, antics as well because he seemed to fit in, go Danny, go Danny into his match report several times today, obviously towards Danny Ings and obviously he seems to be someone who is benefiting from being able to be heard on the touchline more I would suggest Um, just looking at Southampton's team as well all those words they, they are relentless, they're kind of unflashy, they're efficient, functional, those kind of words. They're not really, you know, Danny Ings is a star, but Che Adams alongside him works tirelessly. That's a, That is becoming a really good partnership. Um, Romeo and Ward-Prowse in midfield, you know, they're they're pretty kind of diligent, hard-working players. Ward-Prowse has got a lovely right foot, but, you know, creative, not so sure. Um, Redmond, obviously, on his day is a, is, a, is a real threat as a winger. Armstrong's another one. He's kind of, you know... Very hardworking, uh, talented player, but you know they're not, throughout the team. It's just very they're they're a very kind of functional. Know the relationships all over the pitch, um, and I, I think that does reflect Hasenhutel and and what he wants. And you know he's he's drilled in a, a a system a style of play that has become very very hard to play against. And I think Matt Matt may make the point now that in the since that defeat against Leicester, they've won the same amount of points as 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 Leicester in the league. Is that right? Yeah, they've got the same record. I spoke to Ryan Bertrand last week because it was a, um, yeah, I mean, this is probably not the um, uh, most obvious anniversary that a player would want to talk about than the 9-0, but he was surprisingly open to it because he said that, you know, he defined the sort of Hassan Hootl um, regime as as one of learning. Um, He says it's, you know, they're, they're, you know, I mean, clearly the manager, as we you know, he brought it over from Leipzig where he had success there, but he he has his own very clear vision. But he says, you know, the way Bertrand had it was that the players are engaged in a process of 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 learning with him. And the 9-0, obviously, um, you're not going to get a bigger learning than that um, in the game. But he said that they'd, that they still had a f- plan and a framework. Um, it was tweaked, obviously, after that. He, he, he went changed defensive system he put another striker up with Ings there was you know the, the system was altered but the 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 intensity stayed the same and they actually found a system that played to that intensity better um so I, I you know I, and, and I think you know Bertrand talked about yeah um a place where and, and Alison's totally right about hasn't you know the manager's sort of um uh, he's he's a, a guy who barks at them a lot, but I think engages with them a lot as well. He said it was you know it's not just a sort of sergeant major approach. It's something where they they feel like they're developing, improving as players at the same time. So and yeah, their their re- record ever since that nine nil would put them in you know top six, top seven form in in any normal season. Let's remember that they also were hammered five two by Spurs on the opening day. 
so that was, <laughs> wasn't exactly a great start to the season for them, and they responded with three wins from from the next four. So, yeah, certainly good at responding from these setbacks as well. Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, I think when he, Bertram was saying, you know, the, the way they're playing with that aggression, when it goes wrong, it almost you know, is almost as if it goes you know horribly wrong because they are taking risks with 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 that pressing and with that aggression but at the same time i guess if you do have confidence you know a in the manager b in the the framework that the manager's created that that when something like that happens you, you know you don't panic you don't throw it out you just work out where it went wrong on that day and um and try and learn and adapt Tony Cascarino in the Times points to the likes of Yannick Vestergaard and Jan Bednarek as the types of players that you just don't want to play against because they make things so difficult for you, despite individually maybe not being the, the most talented. But not to be disrespectful, it seems like they've got seven or eight players at Southampton in starting eleven who will make things as difficult as possible for you and some players that... I suppose most of us as individuals wouldn't give that sort of high praise to, but but as a collection of players, it does seem to work. They always seem to have a number of bodies flying at the goal anytime the ball goes near the final third. You know, they, they, they get forward in numbers and they take, as you've already mentioned, risks. Gregor, what do you think of the Southampton squad and the sum of the parts? As I, as I was saying, I think that, you know, you can you could include several players in that, in that kind of description. And I think, I know I've already mentioned, but Che Adams has been his kind of emergence has been crucial for them. He is he is a I would hate to play against him. He's a a bustling presence. who works so hard, um, and I think you know there's quite a few players in this team who've had an interesting route too. You know he started at Ilkes in town, I think, and went Sheffield United, Birmingham. You know he's he's this is his opportunity in the Premier League, and there's a few players who've kind of you know they're they're not they're certainly not. Players who've, who've apart from Ings, who've played at the very, very top level, and I think they're striving to be the best they can in the Premier League. So, it seems that's the kind of that seems to be the kind of ethos that Southampton have, and and I think it's it's the way forward for them. They, you know, they've been a club who've who've always brought players through from their academy and whatnot, but they've they've also recruited very well, and and uh, and they're they're reaping the benefits now. I have to say, I mean, I think Che Adams as well is a, a sort of case in point of, of a bit of patience as well. I mean, I remember when he, you know, I've seen him a couple of times in the championship. I think I saw him once score a hat-trick in about five minutes against QPR and he, he was, he just looked unstoppable and a couple of other occasions as well. And when he moved up, I thought he's an absolute, you know, nailed on to make that leap. And as it turned out, Malpe did it sort of much better earlier, at, at smoother at Brighton and Che Adams is, he's taken a bit of time and whether that's partly to do with confidence or opportunities or just the, the way, you know, linking up with things as, as he's just finding his feet. But yeah, a, you know, a lesson in sometimes, you know, sometimes it can take a, a player a season to, to, to adjust. Um, and, you know, we tend to want to rush in and judge these guys as we do with coaches after after five minutes. When he arrived, Hoiberg, he identified Hoiberg as cru crucial and made him captain and uh, had him as the sort of leader on, on and off the pitch and, and Hoiberg bought in completely to the Hassan Hootel way. And then Hoiberg made it clear that he didn't want to... Um, Day at Southampton, he was he was hoping to go to bigger things, but he was still at the club. So Hassan Hootel didn't always play him, uh, took the armband off him, and what he did was he sort of slow. It was like a slow withdrawal process. He he let the team get used to 
Hoiberg um, slowly going. It wasn't a sudden thing. He sort of slowly drifted out of the picture. And uh, Romeo has has stepped up, I think, and taken that role on as someone who really has that that grit and battle and intensity in midfield for them. And he was really good um, at the weekend. So I think um, if you want a sort of a, a sort of snapshot of of Hasenhutl beyond the the the, the sort of guy who's 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 barking and also, as you say, trying to make players better. I think he handled that very difficult situation really well. And if it had happened at a bigger club, I think a much more would have been made of it. You know, if it, if it had been um, Van Dijk at Liverpool wanting to go to Real Madrid for some bizarre reason, that would be that would be the story every single day. But it it, it sort of got lost a bit because Southampton are not overly fashionable and expected to light the world up. But it was important to them and he navigated that superbly, I thought. Yeah, fantastically. And look, if Ralph Hasenhutl is an example of of great management, then I wonder what you guys thought of the Bolton boss Ian Everett this weekend. Um, a one-all draw with Cambridge United for his side. He then called out their on-loan 20-year-old goalkeeper Billy Krellin in his post-match interview saying the keeper needed to man up. He said, this is a man's game. Three points are at stake and my team deserved to win. Gregor, from your playing experience, does that does that sound familiar to managers that you've worked with, and and what sort of culture does that forge? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think I can't remember many. This is why it's made kind of news. I can't remember many examples of managers calling out a player quite so explicitly like that. Um, rarely does it go down well in the change room. I mean, he's he's since come out and kind of made a half apology, saying that. Um, I'm sorry if any offence was caused. It's nothing that w- wasn't said in the changing room. Well, the changing room's response to that would be, "Why do you need to say in public? You know, you've already told us. You've already told the, go- the goalkeeper." Um, so, you know, it's a, it's always been a kind of unwritten rule that the manager should, if there's anything to be said, it's said in the in the inside the four walls of the changing room, and there's no need to say it publicly. You know, obviously people are asked, and the, the goalkeepers had a difficult time apparently. Um, and the manager can be asked and he can say that, yeah, he's got to improve, but to to say it in that manner and so kind of... I, I, I know Ian Ever a little bit. Um, I've played against him and I've been on a couple of courses with him um, towards the end of my career. And I feel like he was trying to be the kind of no-nonsense, old-school... And he even said again in his apology afterwards, the fans will know that what you see is what you get from me. So that's the that's the kind of impression he's trying to to give to to the supporters and everyone listening there. But I I would be surprised if well it's already backfired. And I, as I say, I don't think this ever goes down well in change room. I don't know, Matt Allison, what you think of, of talking about a young player like this, whether you're going to lose them, whether in your experience talking to managers, you've heard something similar and whether it, it worked out before. The one always jumps out with me is is um, Mourinho in his first spell with Joe Cole. I remember, you know, there was a game when Joe Cole came in, made a, yeah, we did a match winning um, uh, performance and, you know, we all sort of had the pieces ready of, you know, Joe Cole comes good and Mourinho came in and slaughtered him. Um, basically just said, you know, apart from scoring the winning goal, you know, he, he did exactly the opposite of what I want, you know, and talked about the tracking back and the discipline. And now in that instance, Mourinho 
had a plan and it was, you know, again, it, I, I don't think it would have come as a, I mean, it probably was came as a unpleasant surprise to Joe Cole, not necessarily a horrible shock. And I guess Mourinho would say that it was done with a, a big picture in mind of turning him into a, a different type of footballer and one, you know, one that he felt the type of footballer he would want to, to thrive at, at Chelsea. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not unprecedented um, to, to hear it, you know, big managers occasionally do do have goes at players but I think there was something about this this one that was A, as you say the age of the keeper B, you know I mean the phrase man up uh, you know it's a sort of throwaway phrase but one that you'd hope is being sort of you know, slowly extinguished from um, from the English language. It's sort of unhelpful in so so sort of many ways. Um, and yeah, there was just uh, as as Gregor says, it felt like it was a manager trying to big himself up in the process as much as he was trying to um, you know help or improve a player or a team. The phrase "man up" is 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 really nasty now because it. It implies so much more than just anything to do with football, doesn't it? It's like he's he's criticising a player for for being um, uh, having problems, you know, in, in his personality, or maybe he's not loud enough in the dressing room. It's 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 really out of order to use that phrase because it, it does imply a lot more beyond beyond pure football, which is really all you should be talking about. Um, but weirdly. Um, I was a, I, it's Mourinho that always pops into your head when you think about managers going too far, isn't it? And I was at Vicarage Road four years ago when um, United lost to Watford. And this is a weird one because Mourinho came out and uh, he was glowering. Obviously, they'd lost. That's fine. Managers who lose, they're allowed to, they're allowed to be annoyed. But he just said, our left back is 25 metres away instead of five, which does not sound like a particularly terrible criticism but there was it was the way it was delivered he could not it was as though he could not bear to say Luke Shaw's name that was I mean that was a bit it felt a bit off it meant that he everyone went away going oh he's talking why is he talking about Luke Shaw like that he really doesn't like him does he it was it was just um it felt like bullying and I think um Mourinho's has this tendency to to have a go at player not just once but twice sometimes sometimes three times and then it feels like bullying I'm sure he thinks he's being very clever but it doesn't it's not a good image at all um, um, but, but in, ter- in terms of managers going too far often it's with the uh, the media actually because <laughs> so, we're there to ask questions and it's interesting occasionally managers just just don't don't, they're just not prepared for the question, which makes them makes always makes them the ones that look stupid, I think, or like bullies. I've seen Fergie rip to shreds a poor new reporter asking the question, and he was being brave. He was asking a question no one else dared to ask, and instead of looking at him and thinking, "Oh well, you're being brave, Sonny," uh, he just said, "You know." Who are you? Why are you here? And, and the poor guy just went completely red and because he, it was just a horrible way of answering it. It was basically saying, you're not important enough for me to answer your question. So, yeah, and uh, there's the famous ostrich comment. That's weird too. And, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and the only, only time it's happened to me, well, I've had lots of weird experiences, but I remember being at Stamford Bridge. Roy Keane brought Sunderland to Stamford Bridge and they lost... I think I just asked a question about 
with hindsight, do you think you should have set them up that way sort of question? And he, he looked at me and he said, why on earth are you asking that? With that intensity, can you imagine Roy Keane saying that to you? He was about a foot away from me. Um, but I'll give him credit, but because I stood my ground and just asked a more aggressive question in response, he just, he just paused and looked at me and thought, okay, you're being brave. I'll give you a really nice answer, which is what you want. Because I don't, I just, I just don't understand why managers think it's clever to bully when they're in with the media because everyone else will report it and no one's going to be on their side. So they really have to be better equipped. But fortunately, they, these examples are rare. They are rare. And it's interesting that both Matt and I immediately thought of Jose Mourinho, isn't it? And it's just an insight into your your character for those that listen to the podcast. More aggressive than Roy Keane is how we would all describe you as well. So you've, you've absolutely nailed it there. Um, Gregor, in your experience as a player, though, have you been called out by a manager so publicly? Did it affect you if it had? I was racking my brains and I can remember once, yeah. I don't think I should remember. I, I should probably name the manager or club, but... Why? Uh, he named you. It's <laughs> a good point, yeah. No, I'm not going to. But he, <laughs> I was, yeah, I was called it once. And, I, you know, players do, they do notice. You know, they do. Obviously, this is blown up. You know, this is a League Two manager and we're talking about it in the podcast here and everyone has been talking about it this weekend. So this is blown up. But players, they do listen to what, you know, they, they'll read the local paper or they'll watch the interview on the website and you know anything on, on the TV they listen to what I said and if you're if you're called out unnecessarily which I felt I had been then yeah it makes you pretty angry and I think usually your teammates will side with you too you know no matter what you've done the, the school keepers having a really hard time this was not warranted um and, I, and it's hard to see where the what the benefit is apart from to Ian <laughs> he's making himself look like he's trying to project an image of himself that is the only thing he's gained from this uh, and the goalkeeper is, is certainly not gained from it so yeah it's happened I've also I was also again I don't think I should name the the club or the time but there was one time when um, we were facing a kind of relegation battle where uh, our manager informed a newspaper that a group of players had been out on a night out and it made the newspapers. He actually fed a story to the newspaper again to take the heat off himself because we were close to relegation. Um, he tried to sort of sell the players down the river. So you know, occasionally there can be some. More often than not, the manager is trying to make himself look better. That is the that is at the root of it all here. You know. Was your nickname the Barbarians? The Barbarians. Going out to dinner when you shouldn't. Oh, um, yeah, I wasn't there, but um, it certainly wasn't a dinner. <laughs> I like it. He wasn't there. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you weren't, Gregor. I'm sure you weren't. Take the heat off yourself as well. You're just like Ian Everett. Um, <laughs> listen, I really appreciate you talking to me, taking the time today as well. Thank you for listening to the Game Podcast. That's all we've got time for, but plenty to look forward to this week. Lots of European football. We'll be back on Thursday to look back at all of that. A reminder, though, if you want to subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football, go online, search thetimes.com. .co.uk forward slash the game and you'll get one month free. 